I'm Kate Carrigan. And I'm Megan Williams. We're coming to you from the land of the Gadigal Wongal people of the Eora Nation. And I pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Megan, we've come together for a special Croaky Voices two-part justice COVID investigation into prisons and prisoners in the time of COVID-19. That's right. This is public interest journalism investigation supported by the Judith Nielsen Institute for Journalism and Ideas. And today we're focusing on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander prisoners. That's right. And there's a lot of concern, isn't there, at the moment about what's happening in prisons. There's a lot of anxiety generally in the community and it's uh, being focused in the minds of people who have loved ones in prison. And of course, people are in prison. That's right. And for me, I have personal interest and orientation as well as a professional one. I'm a family member. I'm a cousin of people in prison and I'm also a researcher about prisoner health. And I'm so challenged and I'm so torn. Yes, fears that COVID-19 will spread like wildfire in overcrowded facilities and reports from overseas of outbreaks. Also, Victoria stepped up testing in prisons after fears of infection at Ararat facility. Inmates have since been cleared there. But uh, New York City, there, the, the city's jails have an infection rate of around 10%. In the UK, there's been the virus detected in the majority of prisons, and there have been deaths among staff and also inmates. And although Australian Corrective Services have put measures in place, such as quarantining new inmates and those with symptoms, monitoring those at risk and increasing cleaning, with up to 30% of Australia's 43,000 prisoners suffering underlying health issues like asthma and cardiovascular conditions, you can understand the worry. We've been very, very lucky in this country. We haven't followed the trajectory of countries overseas where there are horrifying stories coming up. But we can't rest on our laurel. It is still a real threat in this country. There is talk of the possibility of a second phase. We can't just assume that because we're having low rates of COVID in the community that therefore prisons are safe. Now, we'll be hearing from lawyers, doctors, service providers and the sibling of Wayne Fella Morrison, who died in custody in South Australia in 2016. And I'm just worried that people are going to be treated the same and actually going to be killed in custody by corrections officers during this time due to the way, one, that they're transported, two, that they're restrained and three, the issues of racism and the lack of health care. Also, voices from the inside, thanks to a podcast produced out of San Quentin Prison in San Francisco. Keeping things clean and sanitized is a really big deal in prison. Oh, yeah. People are packed in close quarters. They're often not in great health. And a lot of people are elderly. And it's hard to keep things clean. You know, that's one of the reasons in California they're speeding up the release of something like 3,500 people who are supposed to get out soon. Right. They want to keep them safe and reduce the crowding prisons. In fact, prisons and jails across the country. Right, like Hawaii, Colorado, Pennsylvania, New Orleans, Detroit. Yep, they're all letting people out, and it's happening right here in San Francisco too. And concerns about the possible quick spread of COVID-19 through prisons has sparked calls for the early release of low-risk offenders here, as well as those coming up for parole. And although Australia's infection rates have slowed markedly, and states are moving to relax those social distancing restrictions, those worried about prisons say it's no time to relax. 
My name is Chris Baker. I'm the president of the Australian Indigenous Doctors Association. My mob are Yagara and Warangal on my mum's side and Radri on my father's side. The risks for Indigenous prisoners are the same as for Indigenous peoples in Australia. The fear is that the outcomes would be worse for most compared to most non-Indigenous people. We have higher burdens of chronic disease, including heart disease and diabetes. That's compounded with what we call social determinants of health, socioeconomic status, housing, overcrowding, sanitation. So overcrowding seems to go hand in hand with a prison environment. How quickly could infection spread if it got into the system? The concern is that if it got into the prison system that it would spread reasonably quickly. There are issues with social distancing and spacing within prisons. Being a large institution, there are supplies and individuals coming and going all of the time. It means that the risk of COVID spreading through those institutions would actually be quite high and probably akin to, say, a situation in a nursing home where you have a group of people who aren't free of will and can't come and go with lots of people coming and going with supplies and visitors. So far, there haven't been any reports of infection inside Australia's prisons. Has that eased your concerns at all? And what have you heard or seen of conditions in the country's jails at the moment? It's definitely not a time to relax around the COVID issue. We've been very, very lucky in this country that we haven't followed the trajectory of countries overseas, particularly Europe and the USA, where there are horrifying stories coming up. But we can't rest on on our laurels. It is still a real threat in this country. There is talk of the possibility of a, a second phase or a reactivation. We can't just assume that because we're having low rates of COVID in the community that therefore prisons are safe. And your organisation has called for the early release of some prisoners. How would that work and how would you like to see it being implemented across the country? The individuals we're referring to in terms of early release uh, would be those individuals who are waiting trial and those offenders who committed minor acts and are awaiting, say, a parole or an early release. They would be the individuals who should be considered for release due to COVID. National Cabinet has agreed to guidelines for managing COVID-19 in prisons in line with the Communicable Diseases Network Australia standards, and that includes providing PPE in the event of an outbreak if there's enough to spare, and developing safe travel plans for newly released Indigenous prisoners, including self-isolation, accommodation and securing transport to designated communities. Do you feel reassured by those kinds of guidelines? I think the guidelines around PPE and the uh, the issues around early release of prisoners going to isolation communities before they go to their original communities and ensuring that those prisoners are free of COVID before they go, particularly into the remote communities, that in itself is reassuring. What would also be nice to hear that those individuals who, for minor offences, and either up for early release or are being considered for parole or awaiting trial, that they are also considered uh, for an early release and then follow that same system. It would be an absolute tragedy if we had, for example, an individual in prison on, you know, three strikes and you're in, or they haven't paid fines, you know, a minor offence, and then they contracted COVID and had a poor outcome or even death. I mean, I think that would be 
an utterly tragic situation. We're talking now about easing restrictions to a certain extent across the country. Are there fears that that could actually spark a rise in infection in prisons? I think the issues that affect general society also, of course, affect those prison populations. COVID is still in the country. It's not gone. It's still here. It's just in very low numbers. And if COVID was to, was to accelerate because of that social behaviour, then yes, absolutely, those prison populations would be at increased risk. There are the increased levels of complexity because those individuals are in large institutions with a large number of people in close proximity and very little control over who they can be around and where they can be. And generally speaking, how much access does the medical profession have to prison populations? So if there was an outbreak, would you be feeling confident that enough medical professionals would be able to look after the needs of these people and keep across what was happening? Medical access in prisons in the COVID context is the same as as general society, and that is a, a rapid increase in numbers would put a burden on already stretched facilities within the prisons. As the degree of offence goes up, the degree of watch over the prisoner also goes up. In Brisbane, there is a prison facility attached to one of the major hospitals. And as a junior doctor, I was responsible for delivering some clinics in that medical facility, but it was very limited. And it's more difficult than in general hospital because of the fact that the prisons are in lockdown and because of the fact that multiple people need to be in attendance, especially for those more serious offenders. So yes, if it was to get in a prison, it would foreseeably be quite difficult to control because of those extra control measures that need to be implemented over over the prisoners. Uh, We know that mainstream society, if COVID was to take off, we don't have enough ICU beds, we don't have enough ventilators, and that's what's happened in Europe and the USA. So the prison population is subject to those same pressures, but with extra burdens as well. The calls by doctors for early release are being echoed by families of those in custody and the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Legal Service. The co-chair is Narita Waite. Aboriginal people continue to die in custody as a result of inadequate medical care. Since the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, over 420 of our people have died in custody. And given that our communities are at a higher risk of contracting COVID-19 and in prison, they're subjected to recurrent and disheartening failures by governments to protect themselves. We're just concerned that there's just going to be an influx of Aboriginal deaths in custody as a result of COVID as it will spread through prison like wildfire. Who do you want to see released? So what we're asking for is those most at risk with pre-existing health issues, including elderly people, people with chronic health conditions, disability and mental health conditions, people on remand, including by fast-tracking bail applications, those imprisoned for a term of six months or less, and those that are eligible for early release because they have a very little time left to serve on their sentence with some expedited parole processes, of course. The New South Wales and ACT governments have both passed legislation for early release of prisoners considered at risk, but it hasn't been used yet. Why do you think that's happened? And do you want to see that it is used and that there's similar legislation across the country? Yes. So Natsal's wrote to the federal and all state territory attorney generals and ministers for corrections a number of weeks ago. Since that time, no people in prison are being released in any meaningful way. And instead of being proactive, governments are putting the burden on courts through bail and parole cases to manage the COVID-19 situation. 
What about those who might be at risk of domestic violence or who have nowhere to go and limited support services? That's where we talk about making sure you're drawing upon the resources of the AFOs in these communities so there are those support services there for them, but also providing alternative housing. The calls for housing in the post-release context have been occurring for a really long time and they've never been met. And it's something that's really important, not only in protecting the safety of victims, but also just protecting the safety of the community as a whole. And while the newly enacted early release legislation in the ACT and New South Wales hasn't been used as yet, some inmates are being let out in New South Wales. Mindy Satiri is the Program Director of Advocacy Research Policy at the Community Restorative Centre in the Sydney suburb of Marrickville. Yeah, we haven't seen any early releases under the new legislation. What we have seen is a reduction in the prisoner population in any case and that appears to be primarily a consequence of changes to bail practice and changes to policing practices rather than necessarily any changes to legislation. So what that means is that it appears that less people are going into prison and for a lot of the people that we work with who are often really caught in a cycle of, say, homelessness and incarceration and drug use and going back to prison, they don't seem to be going back to prison in quite the same fast ways that they were. Also, what we're seeing is that there are a number of people that, that were quite surprised to get granted parole. And so we're seeing people perhaps let out of prison a little bit earlier. But again, this is happening under existing legislation. How big a difference has that made in the prison population? What we've been hearing is that there is less overcrowding, much less likelihood of having, say, cells which are designed for one person, having two people or three people in them sometimes. There's much more opportunities for people to have their own cell. We're also hearing that there is much less movements between the prison. So historically, when the prisons are really overcrowded. There's often prisons worth of people moving between the prisons at any one point. That isn't happening at the moment. So people are tending to be in one place, which obviously is a measure that's been taken to try and increase the health and safety of people inside. Having said that, I don't want to minimise how difficult it is for people in prison at the moment in terms of a number of other issues. So Although it's remarkable that we've seen large numbers of people in a process of decarceration in New South Wales, there's a lot of people that shouldn't be in prison in the first place. I guess for the people that are still in prison and for the families that are still supporting them, it's an incredibly difficult time because prison is always incredibly difficult in any case. But there is certainly a lot of mental health issues as a consequence of uncertainty. There's large numbers of people in prison that have mental health conditions in any case. So we're hearing that some of this stuff is really been exacerbated. And I guess that sort of uncertainty about not knowing when they're going to see their loved ones again is also really, really difficult. And Megan, Mindy says families are feeling a lot of anxiety. It's especially hard on the children of prisoners. April Long is National Program Manager with Shine for Kids. It supports kids with a parent in the criminal justice system and is helping families with technology for virtual visits. I think the biggest challenge for children of prisoners at the moment is really the lack of information and contact. You know, under normal circumstances, it's really challenging having a family member or a parent in prison because you just don't have that ability to pick up the phone, to see them face-to-face. And, of course, with COVID-19, we saw the National Cabinet make a decision to suspend personal visits. So for a lot of children on the outside, 
The only contact they're having with mum or dad at the moment is a phone call from mum or dad to them. And of course, ability to send in letters, paintings, but there's none of that face-to-face contact, no ability to give mum a hug on Mother's Day. So it's really challenging time. So it's really exacerbating the mental anguish of these children. Yeah, and I think the thing that a lot of children of prisoners experience is that lack of information, the unknown, really being scared and concerned for mum or dad's well-being. And, you know, that's why at Shine we advocate for telling children the truth, that you know, mum or dad have broken a grown-up rule and and they're in prison because what's going on in their mind, what they think is happening for their family member is always a lot worse than the reality. So if they can go to a visit, see mum or dad, have a hug, that can really alleviate a lot of that anxiety. They don't have the ability to do that at the moment. One of the things we found with the video visits that have now been rolled out is a lot of our families don't have a device at home. So it's one thing to get the video visit capability in the prison, but the child doesn't have the ability to be able to connect, then the visit won't go ahead. So we've run a little bit of a um, donation campaign and we had devices, old tablets and iPads donated. And then we've actually rolled out a loan scheme so that kids can have a video visit. Not the same as face-to-face, of course, but for some of our families, it is a better option because of how far they live from the prison. I know for myself personally, those trips to the prison to visit family can be really long. So a video visit is a good option. It should never replace face-to-face, but we've got to make sure that families have the ability to be able to do these visits as well. So you were saying there that you've got personal experiences of having loved ones in jail. It generally must be quite concerning to have that. So at this time, would you say it's even worse? Yeah, I mean, I I couldn't think of a much worse situation than having a family member in prison at the moment. I was lucky in that um, two of my cousins were released just before Christmas. It is such a period of anxiety. You can't just text them or pick up the phone. You wait by the phone for that three-minute phone call. You drive, you give up your weekends to make sure that they're doing okay. And particularly for our Aboriginal and, and Torres Strait Islander families, you're generally worried about deaths in custody. You're generally worried about mental health. These are the things that families deal with anyway. Put COVID-19 on top of it, and it really is a period of anxiety for our families. So we opened up a hotline and we certainly saw an increase in concerns for family members. Quite often when you've got a family member in prison, they are moved a lot. You won't know until they then ring you a couple of days later and they're in another location. And so families were really trying to keep a track of which prisons had had suspected cases and you know not knowing where your family member is unfortunately in Australia we don't have any kind of principle that means your family member must be in prisons close to where the family lives so my cousin when she was in custody she was moved four times and one of those was out in Wellington which is a six-hour drive so you can imagine for a child to have to drive all the way out there have the visit need to pay for accommodation For a lot of our families, that's really difficult. I don't think there's much worse than having a family member in prison at the moment and that real concern if an outbreak did happen, you know, how that would impact. 
There have been some changes that have allowed some prisoners out. Have any of your parents been allowed out in that way? Yeah, we have seen people who were already coming up for parole be released early. So that was fast-tracked and and we have had incidences of that both in New South Wales and in Queensland. But there are associated challenges with that, particularly in Queensland. We've had some clients who've been released from Townsville Women's Correctional Centre but are unable to return to their remote communities because they're in lockdown because of COVID-19. So Palm Island, you know, other northern Queensland remote communities, Arakoon, you know, it's it's really difficult then for families to be reunited. So there's challenges with COVID-19 right down the line from being in jail to being released to having the support you need when you get out. Absolutely. I think that post-release support has really been a challenge. At Shine, we've been able to adapt our services. So we're doing a lot of e-mentoring you know, as opposed to doing home visits and seeing how the family are going face-to-face. We have been able to utilise social distancing and still check in on the family. Speaking of families, for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders whose loved ones have died in custody, the pandemic is a particularly stressful time. A group of family members have signed a letter calling for early release. One of those is Latoya Arroya Rule, whose brother Wayne Fellow Morrison died in custody in 2016. My name's Latoya Arroya Rule. Uh, my family descend from Wiradjuri and Māori, but I live on Ghana land where I've lived my entire life, the last 27 years. So my other family here on Ghana land are also Gugutheru and Wiringu from the west coast. Um, of South Australia. Wayne Fuller Johnson died in Adelaide Hospital three days after being pulled unresponsive from a police transport van at Yattala Prison. He was restrained with handcuffs, ankle flexi cuffs and a spit mask and placed face down in the rear of the van with eight prison officers accompanying him from the prison's holding cell. A coronial inquiry is still underway with police alleging Mr Morrison became violent before a bail hearing and his family arguing he was mistreated and that they had to find out what happened to him after being left in the dark following the incident. They are backing calls for early release saying Aboriginal prisoners are more at risk. Absolutely. Yeah, that's why I've joined on to this letter. Um, Not only because of the way that our family were treated during the time of my brother's passing, but the way Wayne was actually um, treated and detained and, you know, spit hoods. We know that countries and nations around the world have actually banned spit hoods, and I'm just worried that people are going to be treated the same and actually going to be killed in custody by corrections officers during this time due to the way, one, that they're transported, two, that they're restrained, and three, the issues of racism and the lack of health care. Aboriginal people in prisons continue to go without a voice and don't have access even right now to things like soap, to things like phone calls because they're not allowed to put the phone to their ear in some instances and to visits. Prisons are locked down. So yeah, I'm very worried as a family member given our history. Um, Aboriginal people have experienced genocide before and have experienced the issues of global pandemics. You know, at 1788 and beyond with the poisoning of waters, poisoning of people through colonisation, we already have very increased issues of things like respiratory illnesses, things like heart disease, diabetes, various disabilities and chronic health issues. So we're advocating mostly for the release of 
people with those issues, our elders, our people with chronic health issues, people with HIV and AIDS and immunosuppressed condition. We know that, like Wayne, he wasn't actually put in a remand centre. He was put in a high to medium security prison. That's because our remand centre was full at the time. I just wonder where other people who are going into prisons are being placed right now. Are they being put in remand centres? And why can't they be able to serve that remandee period at their own homes or in places like hotels? Here in South Australia, we have hotels for people during COVID, particularly for homeless people um, and for people coming out of prisons. I actually don't know where they're being placed. We could have mass release today, like other countries around the world. America um, done a mass release of people who just didn't need to be in prisons right now. We could absolutely do that and achieve that today. The government can achieve that today, and it's up to them to do that. That's Latoya Aroa Rule. And Megan, even though there's a really compelling case for early release, there's also another side to this, isn't there? That's right. Getting out of that prison gate is no one-way street. It's also about ensuring that families are prepared to have someone back from prison. At the moment, families are already doing it tough, being in social isolation and literally in lockdown ourselves. And nowadays, there aren't the kinds of social supports for families with loved ones in custody. We've definitely seen a downturn in the number of services available for those. And I haven't heard of any that are available that have been especially funded in response to COVID-19. So the families are faced with some real challenges. Yes, we love our family members, but there are also a lot of preparations required to have someone back. There are all those relationships that need readjusting, family routines that need readjusting. There's the pressure of income and extra food to support people when they come back from prisons. There's also that worry about infection if people haven't been quarantined. So a lot more services to be provided. That's right. I would never advocate that people be in prison and not in the home and in the community, but it's a reality that families also need support. Definitely food for thought and something we'll explore a bit more next time. Now to the United States via the Ear Hustle podcast, a partnership between Nigel Poor, a San Francisco Bay Area visual artist, and Elon Woods, formerly incarcerated at San Quentin State Prison. This is a taste of an episode that began with some listener feedback on COVID-19. We asked families of incarcerated people to write us and let us know what's going on. And here's a bit of what we heard. Kathleen has a son in a federal prison in Louisiana where four incarcerated people had died from coronavirus and 17 others have tested positive. She said she was really worried when she stopped hearing from her son, but she did finally. He wasn't sick. He'd been quarantined because he had been in touch with one of those people who tested positive. Hmm. This is Amelia, whose husband is in Corcoran State Prison in California. She wrote, I'm scared. I've got no one to really talk to. I don't go anywhere during this crisis except work and the grocery store. And I have more hours lately than usual, which is hard on my body and soul. But at least it's good because I alone am responsible to support both of us financially. We have no one else to help us. Layoffs are happening inside, too. Yeah, this one surprised me. It's so close to what's happening on the outside right now. Right. Aubrey's father is in prison in Pennsylvania. Her dad was laid off from his job in the laundry to reduce the number of people working together in close quarters. Aside from the boredom, she worries about him losing the little bit of money he gets from that job that he can spend in the commissary. 
Amy has a loved one in a federal prison in Mississippi. She says a few of the men working in the laundry have repurposed some of the bleach to clean their own areas, which they absolutely need to do. Man, keeping things clean and sanitized is a really big deal in prison. Oh, yeah. People are packed in close quarters. They're often not in great health. And a lot of people are elderly. And it's hard to keep things clean, which is exactly what you need to do during this pandemic. And Erlon, you know that's one of the reasons in California they're speeding up the release of something like 3,500 people who are supposed to get out soon. Right. They want to keep them safe and reduce the crowding prisons. In fact, prisons and jails across the country. Right, like Hawaii, Colorado, Pennsylvania, New Orleans, Detroit. Yep, they're all letting people out, and it's happening right here in San Francisco, too. They're doing the same thing. That's it for the first Croaky Voices Justice COVID two-part special as part of a Croaky News series on prisons in the time of the pandemic. You can follow us by using the hashtag JusticeCovid on Twitter and on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash JusticeCovidAU. And if you like what you're hearing, please follow, like and share and please visit croaky.org for all of our health stories and consider subscribing to Croaky News for just $60 a year to help us bring you the health stories we love to share with you. To take us out this week, a backyard version of Paul Kelly's How to Make Gravy from Don Conlon, an employee of Corrective Services, New South Wales. Hello, Dan, this is Joe here. Hope you're doing well. It's the 21st of December. They're ringing the last bell. If I get good behavior, I'll be out of here in July. Kiss my kids on Christmas Day Please don't let them cry are coming down from Queensland Still are flying in from the coast They say it's going to be a hundred degrees, maybe more That won't stop the roast But who's going to make the gravy? I bet it don't taste the same Just add flour, salt, a little red wine, and don't forget a dollop of tomato sauce for the tang. And give me love to Angus, to Frank and Dolly. Can you tell them I'm sorry? Can you tell them I screwed up this time? Thinking about all that I'm standing.